0: giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is Accelerating Innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at t slash now.
1: Business journalism proves the old adage that truth is stranger than fiction. You literally cannot make these stories up. The Enron story was a complete game changer in my career because Enron became this cultural moment in American history. This major American company with these executives who were supposed to be the smartest guys in the room could collapse into bankruptcy in the space of about six months. A lot of people who become investigative journalists set out to be that. They want to go shed light on wrongdoing in corporate America. I didn't necessarily set out to do that and I still don't, I'm primarily driven by curiosity. I want to explain things. I'm Bethany McLean. This is Making a Killing. If you type Relentless.com into your browser, you'll be redirected to Amazon.com. Relentless was the original name that Jeff Bezos wanted for Amazon. And now, more than ever, we can understand why. The company that started out selling books is, in so many ways today, the everything store. In 1996, Amazon had 151 employees and $5.1 million in revenue. Last year, Amazon had 647,500 employees, and total revenue across all its business segments, which obviously includes a lot more than books these days, of $232.89 billion. Its net income, though, was only $10 billion. Amazon has long been criticized for its risky strategy of inefficiency, burning capital without delivering consistent profits. But this strategy helped it dominate several key markets, online retail, Ebooks, audiobooks, cloud computing, to name just a very few. And it keeps on coming. There's Amazon Grocery, Amazon Restaurants, Amazon Healthcare. There's so much to understand about Amazon, and given its rate of growth and change lately, it can feel a little dizzying. But my main interest is not in whatever the latest daily headlines are about the company. I'm interested in what all those headlines add up to, taken as a whole. What Amazon has become, what industries it has disrupted and forever changed and ultimately what that means for all of us. Because, okay, not quite all of us, but most of us are Amazon's customers. I'll confess to getting boxes on a frighteningly regular basis. That means, in a sense, we're Amazon's enablers as it decimates other businesses, from our neighborhood bookstores, to now our grocery stores, to maybe our pharmacies. If ultimately it's Amazon's world and we just live in it, is that a good thing? Can Amazon be trusted to wield its ever-growing power benevolently? Or are we all going to come to regret the monster we've created is amazon a modern day frankenstein my guest now is seth godin who hardly needs an introduction seth and i share a publishing alma mater portfolio the business imprint of penguin random house and one of my memories from long ago is of my publisher handing me Seth's remarkable book purple cow but it's hard to believe this is the first time we're actually meeting live He's exactly who I wanted to talk to in order to dive into questions of Amazon and publishing, but also retail and marketing and trust. Seth's latest book, This Is Marketing, is a New York Times bestseller. I know it's supposedly terrible podcasting to talk about something only we can see, so let me describe what we're looking at. There are these two pictures of Jeff Bezos side by side. On the left is this 1998 Jeff, looking very gentle and sweet in a frumpy brown sweater, like a New York City book editor. This Jeff's caption is, I sell books. Over on the right is Jeff from 2017, with a shaved head, aviator glasses, black vest, muscles bulging, very badass, looking like he should be the lead in the next Fast and Furious movie. This Jeff's caption is, I sell whatever the fuck I want. (laughs) I love this because it's just the perfect metaphor for Amazon's evolution, the change from selling books to selling everything. But more is this attitude of relentlessness. Is relentless the right word, Seth?
2: Well, relentless was Jeff's word. The original name for Amazon was relentless.com. I think it's important to to differentiate between the media's perception of Amazon as the work of someone who has a plan about what he's going to sell and how he's going to sell it. It's more about the system. And if we can understand the systems analysis of what is it like to work there? What is it like to sell there? What is it like to be an investor? Each of the elements of the system add up into the Amazon as we experience it. I don't think Jeff could change the system by himself, even if he wanted to. He's responsible for the system. We are all impacted by the system. But what we're going to need to understand is systems that end up changing our culture at some level are on us because we are the culture and we as a people have the privilege and the possibility of changing systems if it's important enough to us. We just can't wait till it's too late because if we do... And we don't get to change the system.
1: It's interesting because I mentioned this analogy of Amazon as being like Frankenstein. And it's an interesting comparison because when you talk about um, even Jeff Bezos being unable to control fully the monster he's created, right? It's taken on a life of its own. What are the key ingredients in that system that make it so powerful or make it so disruptive?
2: Well, so let's talk about the Amazon we see, not Amazon Web Services or the other things that contribute most of their profit. Yeah, But the Amazon that we see is a company that sells everything. They don't sell anything. And that's a really big distinction. Most of the retail that we've ever seen in our whole lives is run by merchants. And merchants are driven by the idea that they have a limited amount of shelf space. So there's a skill and a talent and a gift involved in being a good merchant. About so,
1: selectivity and curation.
2: And not just curation, but owning the outcome of what you just did. (laughs) So when Neiman Marcus pushes a certain kind of look, or when uh, an item is sold in a chain of car stores and a different item isn't, these have impacts on us. Amazon began with the insight that there's infinite shelf space. And therefore, the entire organization is built around, we sell everything, and no one here has the power to sell a thing. So the entire system is run by an algorithm. And the algorithm says, this click, this moment, this bit on the screen, what's its maximum value today? And the problem with day trading today is you don't know where that cycle keeps pushing you. There's no long arc. There's just the, oh, if I use this word instead of that word, today's sales go up. And the problem with that is it usually leads to a race to the bottom.
1: A race to the bottom in what respect? In terms of the cheapest merchandise wins rather than the quality merchandise?
2: So that's a great question. So race to the bottom could be make it cheaper so you can sell it cheaper. Race to the bottom could be make it more urgent or pander to the people that you're trying to sell to. Make it more vivid. It's said that if you A-B test website enough, sooner or later it will become a porn site because-
1: (laughs) That's really depressing. It is
2: depressing, but sooner or later, this picture will get more clicks than that picture. This claim will get- So if you look at the horrible news and the buzzfeedification of the web, it didn't happen because Walter Cronkite's heirs wanted it to happen. It happened because the algorithm said, make the headline one that people click on. And the same thing's true with solar lanterns, and the same thing's true with paper clips.
1: Expand that solar lantern um, um, piece of it. You and I had discussed that, but expand, expand. Uh, tell us what happened with solar lanterns.
2: In the old days, if someone came up with an idea for a solar lantern, there wouldn't be very many factories that could make one. You would take a risk, craft it, bring it to the merchant at Walmart or Kmart or Target, and say, "Here, I made this." The merchant would have to allocate you scarce shelf space. You'd have to stand behind it. There might be one or two to choose from. And if it was good, you would change the culture because you could get a piece of the market. In the modern age of infinite shelf space, with dozens or maybe 50 companies, many of them in China but around the world, using cheap labor and cheap systems, anyone can commission a solar lantern. You don't have to have a known brand name. You'll still get shelf space. You need reviews? You can buy reviews. You can buy reviews for a nickel. And so all of a sudden, the consumer who types in solar lantern, because the search box wins every time, you type it in because it's convenient, solar lantern.
1: And you you end up at Amazon because that's convenient.
2: Right. But then Amazon search box shows you 50 solar lanterns, 20 solar lanterns. Anyone can sell a solar lantern. They're sorted by review, but the reviews are fake. And which one are you going to buy? They're all the same. Buy the cheap one. The algorithm keeps saying, buy the cheap one.
1: Okay, there's nothing that sounds appealing about this. Is there a good side to it? Is there any benefit apart from cheaper merchandise?
2: It's all going to work itself out in the following way. More access, more choice will enable more consumers to make better decisions, and that over time the fake reviews will work themselves out, that Amazon will always give you a refund if you say, my solar lantern is lousy. Amazon's brand is the most respected brand in America. You're not going to switch. You don't have a lot of choices. This is hyper-capitalism. It's infinite choice with nobody being the nanny state, nobody saying, I'm the merchant, I'm
1: in charge. Instead, pick. Pick. So let's go back to this, to the retail part of Amazon, this obvious retail part, because I want to push a little bit on what the cost of this has been. And there's this common perception, right, that it's Amazon that's putting retailers out of business, Jumburry, Toys R Us. Um, but this has been happening for a long time. We had superstores years ago putting the little guy out of business. I remember watching the 1998 Tom Hanks, Meg Ryan movie, You've Got Mail, where the big, you know, Fox Bucks, Barnes and Noble look alike is putting the cute little shop around the corner out of business. Now the bad guy is Amazon. So has anything really changed, or is this just evolution?
2: Well, there's a very long history of retailers going out of business. And if Amazon wasn't putting them out of business, somebody else would. Retailers go out of business because landlords never go out of business. The question for me is, what will we do to our culture when there is no Main Street? I'm not saying that our culture can't survive without Main Street. I'm saying that there's going to be a significant cost to that dislocation. Because what Main Street does for us, in addition to giving us a convenient place to pick up a kind bar, is oh, there's a bathroom. Oh, there's lights. Oh, Oh." there's another
1: human being. Maybe I could have a conversation with that human being.
2: (laughs) Exactly. If you watch enough old Star Trek, you'll come to see there are no stores. No one goes shopping in science fiction.
1: You know, I had never noticed that, but you're absolutely right.
2: The real question is, This improvement that's going on, making things cheaper.
1: Improvement in quotes, right?
2: This improvement in quotes, this change. Things are cheaper. I shop at Amazon all the time because it's more convenient, more reliable, cheaper. I like that brand as something that makes it easier for me to do my life. Most of the cash benefit accrues to the middleman, in this case, Amazon. But it is all being sucked out of somewhere. And the question is, when that somewhere is gone, what will we replace it with? And will we be able to fashion another culture, a better culture, one that we're proud of, when we take away the thing that has fueled it? And so when I think about the book industry and the people that I cherish, that I've worked with for all those years, there isn't going to be a New York City book industry in 20 years. It's impossible to imagine that it will exist because they don't have any friction. If there is no friction, where are they going to generate the heat they need to pay the bills? They won't be able to. So what will those people do? How will we create cycles of forward motion that enable people who create, or merchants, or people who sell, or people who own a factory, to thrive in a world where there is no friction?
1: It's a great irony, isn't it, that it is all of us, Amazon's customers, who are enabling something that in the end may be very antithetical to our interests. It may not be what we want. Is there something Orwellian about the Amazon that it's going to become?
2: Well, so then the question is, once you build the systems and the algorithm and you are doing it to please the public markets, where do we see that the public markets have ever been right in their long-term perspective about what it is to please them. Because the companies that we are the most proud of, the ones that we point to, aren't the ones that Wall Street is happy with in the long run. That what it means to to make Wall Street happy in the long run is that you are predictably and reliably beating estimates on your quarterly earnings per share. Yep. Not that you're leaving behind something better than you
1: found it. So let's pause on that point because Amazon somehow managed to play the game differently, at least for a number of years, in the sense that Amazon didn't produce consistent profits, and yet the company has had unlimited access to capital raising and a soaring stock price. Why were the rules different for Amazon? Why was Jeff Bezos able to play by a different set of rules, at least in the short term?
2: Well, uh, to bring in a, a overused phrase, Jeff is almost always the smartest guy in the room. And
1: For real. For real. <laughs> no sarcasm in that.
2: Right. And he understood that something was shifting in the stock market because something was shifting in the way the internet worked and that there are stocks that are traded because their numbers make sense and there are stocks that are traded because their story makes sense. And if you can have the best story stock and there's a limited supply of it, people who want the best story stock will buy it. So Jeff said... Here's what I want you to measure me on, and he has regularly exceeded the thing he said to be measured on. Other companies say, "You want to be measure us on profit? Go ahead, measure us on profit." So Jeff's consistency in that approach was key. He's vulnerable now for the following reason: lots and lots of the key people who he works with need the stock price to keep going up, when it was just him. It was okay if the story hit a speed bump. But when it's lots of people who are all have their hands on the algorithm, the challenge you have, and I lived through this when AOL was my biggest customer, and I lived through this when I worked at Yahoo, is that these people have their hands on the dials. And there are decisions that they will make based on what Wall Street is telling them. Because at some point, Wall Street always says, we heard the story, now we want to go back to the thing we like to measure.
1: Jeff Bezos has also been able to do something else that I think is really interesting, which is that he's created sort of this, with Amazon Web Services, the cloud computing business, He's he's it essentially gives him leverage in the retail business that other retailers don't have, because he's got this money-making appendage kind of stuck on this mammoth retail business. And so I think the AWS accounts for what, like 150% of Amazon's operating business? And so how does that give Amazon advantages that other retailers don't have?
2: Okay. So just a little bit of background here. 25 years ago, the typical newspaper made 110% of its profit from classified ads. But people didn't think of the newspaper as the classifieds with some bonuses, right? Well, AWS is the invisible cloud in the sky that runs many, many websites. And the brilliance that Jeff brought to the table was this. He said, I'm going to need something like this. If I'm gonna need something like this, I bet my competitors are gonna need something like this. And if I'm willing to lose money building it to scale, I can erect a moat. So my competitors will need to use mine because it's so much cheaper.
1: I wanna jump in and blow your mind. We all think of Amazon as the boxes that show up at our doorstops, but that's just the Amazon we can see. The Amazon that sells more batteries than Duracell, more diapers than Pampers. CNN famously said Amazon is building an army of brands, and their private label sales reached 7.5 billion last year. There are more than 100 million Americans paying more than $100 a year for the service of Amazon Prime, and Amazon commands half of the US e-commerce market. But the rest of it, the Amazon you don't see, is even more staggering. There's Amazon Web Services, or AWS, which accounted for 50% of the company's operating income last year. There's Amazon Video, Amazon Studios, Amazon Go, Amazon Fresh, Amazon Restaurants. They own Whole Foods. They acquired an online pharmacy. They are leaders in AI and deep learning. Their revenue across all business segments totaled 232.89 billion. That's billion with a B last year up 31% from the year before, and there are no signs of a slowdown in 2019. I understand the concept of Amazon selling everything and, and not selling anything in particular, but the question for me is, when can they change that dial? And if you look a little bit closer into the publishing world, right, Amazon just originally sold books, and they didn't sell a particular book, they sold books, and everybody loved it. But now Amazon is also the publisher, the creator, publishing its own books within its own system. And so I was struck by this Wall Street Journal story that begins with this great anecdote about a guy named Mark Sullivan and his book, Beneath a Scarlet Sky. Amazon published it and effectively used Amazon's tools to make it into a bestseller. And so what happens if Amazon starts working that dial?
2: Okay, so I can talk about the book thing from personal experience because it was my idea. I met with Jeff in 1995, and I said, you're already doing the hard part. You should do the part about publishing. And he laughed and said, not too soon. Five years later, I went back. Five years later, I went back. And about, I don't know, eight years ago, they called me up and they said, okay, we're ready.
1: Now it's time.
2: Now it's time. Now, what do I mean by the hard part? The hard part is they know who the readers are and they know what the readers want. No one in New York has ever done that. Random House doesn't know who the readers are. Penguin doesn't know what the readers want. There's this disconnect.
1: Right. Amazon's created a knowledge machine.
2: Exactly. So they ought to be able to go to the author and say, based on what we know, we can find books for our readers instead of you trying to find readers for the books. That's a game changer. That's magnificent.
1: They can upend the entire system.
2: Exactly. And this is where the everything and anything thing kicks in. Because guess what? Amazon has done many, many books like Sullivan's book. But they're pointing to the Sullivan book because it turns out they didn't pick his book to be a bestseller. They're playing a portfolio theory. Lots of books went through the system and Amazon has failed to act as a merchant and say, we pick this book. That, in fact, it's a super level playing field. They don't promote their books that much more than other people's, the way a real merchant would do it. They don't make other people's books harder to find the way a real merchant would, it's still back to this idea of everything. So the egalitarian in me says, terrific. Now you don't have to look or sound like an author to get New York to pick you. You can go straight to the Kindle and get 20 of your friends to buy your book. And if 20 of your friends buy your book on the Kindle and it's amazing, and now 4 million of your friends have bought the book and you're a best-selling author.
1: But what happens if Amazon becomes not just the everything store, but the only store? Then can't they start to work that lever? Why wouldn't they work those levers eventually?
2: Well, everything in their algorithm, in their DNA, in their setup is don't work that lever. That the entire mindset is the system will figure out what's going to be sold. They don't think like direct marketers or mass marketers. They think like algorithm marketers. Put it in, tag it properly, see what happens because it doesn't cost them anything because they know something's going to work. It doesn't matter to them which one works. That's brand new thinking. I am not anti-Amazon. I am anti-letting an algorithm run wild forever. At some point, I want human beings to stand up and say, we understand the algorithm. We're proud of the algorithm. We changed the algorithm. And this is the problem we have with Facebook and Google. You'd
1: vote for man, not machine.
2: Google famously says, it's not up to us. The algorithm decided to put this as the first match. This is nonsense. There are more than 3,000 people at Google who do nothing but tweak the algorithm. But they don't want to accept responsibility for the fact that they do that. There are thousands of people at Amazon who are working on their search algorithm. There are thousands of people at Amazon who are figuring out what clues and signals you can put next to something to move it up or move it down. There are lots of things that are built by hand that become the rules in the algorithm that shift how entire industries operate because the algorithm isn't just a bunch of code. It's a series of principles.
1: Well, then let me push back on your point that there's something non-merchant-like about Amazon, because aren't all those people, in effect, being merchants in that sense, that they are influencing the decisions we're going to make about how we pick things and how we make our selection? Aren't they embedding a humanity or a friction into the system, perhaps in a slightly different way than a traditional retailer would have?
2: Let me try to differentiate what I mean by merchant. In the traditional model, a merchant owns 20 square feet the shelf and has a name. The challenge I have here are that people who are better at coding than being in a community are anonymously making decisions that have ramifications far outside their 20 square feet. Right. And when we see the bad outcomes of that, we don't even know who to ask. Not only that, but we can't determine whether it's an innocent side effect or the point.
1: You seem perhaps a little more optimistic than I would expect you to be, or a little more optimistic than I might be, given that pressure from Wall Street, that at some point Wall Street is going to say, turn up the dial, do this, make the extra 12 cents on this, use your power to make a bestseller, to pick a book that's going to be a bestseller, use your power to pick one product over the other, and by the way, make, make the person making the product pay for that in some way. I mean, it's not benign the way you're describing it, but doesn't it have the potential to become something very not benign?
2: So when I think about monopolies that have failed us and what has happened when they have tried to extract more money, we see all the way back to the first example of Standard Oil. Standard Oil basically acted like gangsters and eliminated their competition. Right. If we think about the company everyone hates the most, their cable company, they have done things like limit choice and given us horrible customer service lied to us and tricked us because we don't have any choices. When I think about how Amazon will make more money, those aren't the side effects that I see. I think they will make more money by incrementally increasing the cost of using AWS, which will be paid for by all of us, but not very much. And then I think they will make more money by pushing the retail division to actually make a profit, which means that each of us will pay an extra dollar, $5, $20 a month.
1: And we'll pay it because by that point we won't have any choice, right? We can't go back to the store down the street to buy our book or our toilet paper or our whatever instead because that store down the street won't exist anymore.
2: This is true, but it's still going to be cheaper than that store sold it to us. We still come out ahead on the money side.
1: On the money side. Cheaper is an interesting word because it depends on what cost you're trying to measure, right? Exactly. Per your point.
2: So my whole articulation here is not about the fact that Amazon is going to be a net drag on the gross national product of the United States or our efficiency to acquire stuff. It's impossible for me to imagine that that will occur. What I believe is a change is being made to our culture, starting with some of the things we care the most about, books and television, and we're not prepared to talk about it and we're not aware of how the change is happening and that if the change becomes algorithmic, I worry about that because as bad as the people in Hollywood have behaved over the years, we knew who the people in Hollywood were. And the people in Hollywood were in our community.
1: Accountability versus anonymity. Maybe that's a way to sum it up. I think I get it going back to the publishing example. It's not so much that somebody at Amazon is saying, let's make this book um, a bestseller. It's more that an algorithm is making the book a bestseller and nobody's controlling it, but something is controlling it. And so the choices we're, we get are going to be dictated by something we, we can't see. And we'll be buying a book that wasn't hand-selected for us by a someone who loves books, but rather as the result of, a, of an algorithm.
2: So here's the J.K. Rowling story. Uh, when I was a book packager, I did 120 books in 10 years. I did almanacs, I did uh, how-to books, and I also did young adult fiction. And I did a series for Scholastic based on Nintendo games because boys weren't reading enough books. So I got the rights to Nintendo games and turned them into novels. And Scholastic made me take out all vampires, all casual death, because they said, we're not ready. No casual death? None. <laughs> we're not, that's what Nintendo games are filled with, right? <laughs> right? We are not ready to have nine and 10-year-old boys read this. Two years later, after the series had sold pretty well, they came out with this book that no one had ever heard of called Harry Potter. And I don't need to tell you, there's a lot of casual death in Harry Potter. And then bookstores took this book and hand-sold it, which is a a long-standing treasured tradition in book publishing, which is the actual owner, the actual clerk saw the nerdy 10-year-old walk in and handed the book to the kid and said, you need to read this. And Harry Potter went on to make J.K. Rowling the most successful author in history, first billionaire as an author. It is inconceivable that if Amazon had existed then, that Harry Potter would have worked.
1: That's an incredibly frightening thought.
2: Change that comes down from tastemakers is different from change that comes up from the grassroots. And I think we need both. We've always had both. But the algorithm takes one of those away.
1: Yeah, it's not even change coming from tastemakers. It's change coming from an algorithm, right? And how does that play out? We're talking about books, which are of critical interest to you and to me and to all of us who care about the culture. But what about when it comes the same sort of power being applied to other aspects of our life from what food we eat to what medicines we have available as Amazon becomes Amazon restaurants and Amazon Healthcare.
2: So the healthcare thing is interesting cuz Walmart is quietly planning on healthcare being the next pillar that they're going to embrace. If we can figure out how to apply the efficiency of the algorithm to the price of an antibiotic, if we can figure out how to use rules-based thinking to make sure people don't waste their lives and their money on placebos when they're not effective, you know, then we're going to come out ahead. But again, what's a challenge here is that the science of direct marketing is different than the magic of a human who sees us, who understands us, who speaks to us a certain way. And what we know about medicine is that a third of the time, we get better because we believe we're going to get better, not because we took the right pill on the right day. I worry about the lack of choice, that What all the people who are trying to play this game are trying to do is lock people in. Because in an open system with unlimited choice and efficiency, nobody makes any money. So the race is always to create some version of monopoly because monopoly creates the ultimate form of scarcity so that you can get your money back. And that's why people are arguing that a nonprofit in the center of the system that is truly motivated to keep turning the algorithm toward efficient is a worthwhile thing to have. And if you're a capitalist, I think it's important to acknowledge that monopoly is almost the opposite of capitalism. It is not a useful product of capitalism. So when I look at healthcare, the book industry is tinker toys compared to the complexity of healthcare. Who's paying? Who's the customer? What do they want? What if you get it wrong? right? My mom uh, used to run the bookstore that she founded in Buffalo, where it was in the Albright Knox Art Museum. So she had certain art books that no one else had. And I still remember the day, uh, shortly before she died, she got a call from Amazon and they said, do you have this book? A human called her. And she said, yes. They said, we'll pay full price and we'll pay to have you FedEx it to our customer. Because they were willing to lose money to be able to keep the promise, we have every book. right? And they found a copy of the book for Well, if someone needs chemo medicine, it's different than if they need a book about Magritte. And you're going to have to figure out where in the supply chain you live, what are the shortcuts, what are the shortcuts you can't take. Will you let everyone play? When Orrin Hatch says, I want you to be able to sell beeswax vitamins and call them a drug, these are all very different decisions than, please carry my Kindle book called The Martian.
1: In some ways, though, I guess the silver lining to that analysis is that this isn't going to be easy for Amazon. In other words, we're, we're on a path to it being Amazon's world, and we're just going to live in it, but we're not, we're not going to get there quite as quickly if they're not going to be able to take over our, the healthcare business as well.
2: There's stuff we need, and there's stuff we want. And the thing about stuff you want is that once you have it, you want something else. So last year we spent as much on self storage as we spent on going to the movies. That we have more stuff than we have room for. That's really depressing. True. So this once you've uh created the actual everything store and everyone is a click away from everything. That's not enough. Now I want to buy something from Shopify that nobody else has. Now I want to buy an experience that no one else has experienced. We're watching already a whole generation now that would rather have a smartphone than a car. Why is that? Right? Because the totemic value of a car has gone down, whereas the value of being connected has gone up. So the culture and the economy are going to keep shifting, and it's not clear that it's Amazon's world When it comes to this thing that they do, the same way it's not UPS's world, even though they deliver everything. UPS is sort of invisible. And has UPS's ubiquity changed our culture? Of course it has. But I don't want to call it UPS world, even though UPS comes to my house every day.
1: So is there any chance that consumers start to say, no, 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 this actually isn't what we want, or that businesses that are being decimated or producers that are, that are having their margins shrunk by Amazon start to put pressure on the system? Is there a way to stop the algorithm in, in process?
2: Uh, I think there is zero chance that individual consumers and individual providers will have any impact whatsoever on the algorithm. Zero. zero. That's pretty strong. It's like saying, I'm tired of the telephone. I'm not going to have telephone calls anymore. I'm going to walk to people's houses and talk to them face-to-face. AT&T did not worry about that problem in 1960. Not going to be a problem. The problem for monopolists is when the culture says to the government, we care very much about antitrust. And it comes in waves. There was no antitrust thinking before Standard Oil, and then there was a ton of antitrust thinking. And Teddy Roosevelt was at the heart of it. And then it faded over time. So it comes and it goes. And it's been gone a long time. But I think when we saw, when we see the hijinks at the FCC and everything else, it's due to come back. And when it comes back, and it's already come back in Europe, that is something that these giant algorithmic companies have to figure out how to deal with, because they can't make it go away.
1: Do you think that's on Bezos' radar screen?
2: Oh, I think that they spend a lot of time thinking about that. I mean, from all the way from the early days of sales tax. They could have fought the sales tax thing harder. Instead, one day, they took a deep breath and they said, fine, we're going to collect sales tax.
1: Is there any chance, if Amazon is around in 100 years, that we have both this, or an Amazon-like thing is around in 100 years, that we can also still have independent stores on Main Street? Or does one automatically at some point come at the expense of the other?
2: So what we know is that there's a really big desire, we don't know if it's primordial or recent, for human beings to go to a store on Main Street. That I was in a fancy mall last week, the busiest business by far was Starbucks because everyone was window shopping and everything else and drinking the one thing that they could afford in the store, in the mall, right? Precisely. So merchants and retailers are clever. They like being merchants and retailers. They will show up with new things to do in those spaces that human beings will pay a little to engage with. I think the big shift is going to be landlords have to understand that the thing that they were charging a huge tax on has gone away. And you can't charge the pottery barn tax anymore. You can't charge the Prada tax anymore. And we're going to see landlords take a big hit. Or what we're seeing in New York is dozens and dozens and dozens of empty storefronts. And one of the things I proposed on my blog, which was really interesting, the feedback I got, was I think a vacancy tax is a great idea. I think if your store is vacant for more than three months, you should have to pay a tax on it because it should pay for the cops and the lights and everything else we have to do to make up for the fact that you're not doing it.
1: I think that's a fantastic idea.
2: It makes perfect sense. And I got four angry notes, all four from landlords. So I must be (laughs) to something. That's
1: not surprising. All right. If you could change one thing about the business world, or if you could have maybe, let's stick with Amazon. If you could have Amazon do one thing differently, what would it be?
2: I think we need to do two things to be our best selves as humans in a commercial economy. And they are to solve interesting problems and to lead. And what it means to lead is to see other people, to truly see them, to figure out where you can help them, where you can take them, and what you'll take responsibility for. That is an interesting problem. There are lots of interesting problems. When I think about the least thing a human can do in the commercial world is to say, will this be on the test? What does my boss want me to do? And worst of all, I'm just doing my job. And so I guess what I would hope for in a relentless company that's driven by a series of algorithms is how many people there are charged with never saying, I'm just doing my job, and instead are saying, here, I made this, and I'm proud of it.
1: You want the algorithm to have accountability. I do indeed. So I loved my conversation with Seth, in large part because what comes out of his mouth is not what you think is going to come out of his mouth, and those are always the best conversations. So I'm both more optimistic and more pessimistic after my conversation. I'm disheartened because I really do see the dangers of the algorithm, as Seth calls it. We want accountability. We want humanity. We want that great independent bookstore on the corner of our main street. Or at least we're going to want them when they disappear. But I'm less concerned about Amazon taking over the world than I was. Healthcare is going to be interesting, even for Jeff Bezos. We also spent a lot of time talking about not just the Amazon you can see as a consumer, but the Amazon you can't see, the algorithm. And I think I'm a little bit reassured on that front. While the Frankenstein Bezos has built may not be controllable, if Seth is right, it's also not going to be able to act with outright malice. Does that pass for optimism? Making a Killing is a co-production of Pushkin Industries and Chalk and Blade. It's produced by Ruth Barnes, My executive producers are Allison McLean, no relation, and Megan Casey. The executive producer at Pushkin is Mia Lobel. Engineering by Jason Gambrell. Our music is by Jed Flood. Special thanks to Jacob Weisberg at Pushkin and everyone on the show. I'm Bethany McLean. Thanks so much for listening. Find me on Twitter at BethanyMac12.